You're listening to In Technology, your source for trends about security, sustainability, and technology. The value that we create in the digital world happens amongst machines, many machines. Each one of those in a zero trust world also has to be authenticated. Hi, and welcome to the In Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Garrison, and with me is my co-host, Camille Morehart. And today, our guest is Kevin Bocek. He's Vice President of Ecosystem and Community at Venify, a cybersecurity company based in Salt Lake City. Although Kevin has lived and worked across Europe and Asia and the U.S., he is a U.S. native. And he's recognized as a leading expert in machine identity management, threat detection, encryption, digital signatures, and key management. So welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here with you and Camille. We've spent a lot of time talking about identity, but it was mostly about the user identity. And is the person sitting in front of the PC, for example, the person they claim to be? But today we're going to talk about machine identity. And I noticed preparing for this show, you had a role with something that we all read about in the news, and that was machine identity sort of scenario with Hillary Clinton's email server. So I wonder if you could help us understand machine identity in the context of something we probably all read about back in the day. Well, we all know machine identities anyway in our day-to-day life. It's the way that when we log on to our bank, the little padlock in our browser glows. We know it's safe. It's trusted. It's when we get an update in our car now, it's the way that our car knows that an update is safe and trusted. It's all because of machine identity. So yeah, machine identity, just like for us as customers or team members, says what's good or bad friend or foe about any piece of software, cloud, device that's out there. And back in the day when we were all really curious about Secretary Clinton's uh, email server, we were all interested in, in facts. And so one of the things that we were able to bring is facts is understand when an identity for that server, that email server was made available online, which told us when it was being used or not for communication. Also, it told us something really interesting too. When was it available through a web interface too? It furthered the conversation, which I think we've all learned and looking to improve cybersecurity. So machine identity is at the core of everything as we go to the cloud, to AI and more. So you basically did forensics to figure out when a server was being used and when the traffic was flowing. You had another example of that, right? Can you explain just so we can get a little bit more of a broad sense of what kind of information we can glean from it technically? So you also investigated Equifax? In this case, I think many of your listeners may know there was a significant breach that affected everyone around the world. And kinetically, we all had to get new credit cards. And while that was due to a vulnerability in software. The one thing, the question was, how were the adversaries able to go undetected for 200, 300 days? And research by both the UK and the US governments identified along with Equifax is that there were hundreds of machine identities that actually were expired. And all of this threat protection system wasn't working because machine identities, they allow us to know 
what's trusted, also what's private or not. When these were reactivated, when these weren't expired, immediately Equifax could see what was coming and going, including the adversary. Interesting. So I think most of us probably, when we think about machine identity, we're thinking about it at the machine level. But machine identity actually goes all the way down even to like code segments. Can you talk a little bit more about that aspect? The world is made up of all machines, as you say, Tom. I mean, it's just not the compute where it runs, but it's the operating system. It's the software applications. Software applications run other applications. So multiple levels of machines running then, of course, have to communicate with each other. I mean, think about us right now, this video being transported Uh, recorded over Zoom from one machine to another, they all have to know if they're good or bad, friend or foe. Uh, So identity becomes really, really important. And then when you think about the future, which is AI driven, you know, how do we know our AI models, A, that have been trained are the same ones that we trained, and then B, when they're running that they haven't been poisoned or some other way tampered with, and then C, when they talk to another machine, is it friend or foe? All of that comes down to machine identity. It sounds like you're pointing to a future where you have sort of autonomous machine, you know, mutual authentication before they complete a transaction or, or share data or exchange information. Can you talk about what is a machine identity? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's a complicated question when you ask it of a human. I don't know if it's simpler when it comes to machines, especially as we span software to hardware. Well, just like us as as humans, you know, we have multiple types of identities. So I might have a driver's license, a passport, other forms of identity. And with machines, there are different types of identities too, whether you're a Kubernetes cluster or a cloud or a piece of code that gets installed in your car. So there are different types. Uh, as I mentioned, the one that probably we're most familiar with is that one that turns the padlock on in our web browser. That's something called a TLS certificate. And there are many others, but they have a lot of in common with human identity. So they expire. They're issued by authorities, just like I get my driver's license from Florida, a machine identity comes from the business at running or some other authority. So a lot of commonalities in this machine world uh, that we've brought from us as humans. I'm curious about this because so many of us have heard about like chat GPT and how people are using generative AI to do all kinds of interesting things. And, and one of those interesting use cases is coding, writing code. And so the complexity associated with an AI model generating code from somewhere, somehow, and then understanding whether it's, is that good code? Is it bad code? Can I trust it? Can I not trust it? There's so many different levels of identity that are sort of nested into that one action. First of all, how do you keep it straight? And then second of all, like, you know, I didn't come up with that use case. That's some that people are talking about. So how do you see the future evolving with this complexity in mind? Well, first of all, as a cybersecurity professional, I'm going to say something you might not expect. There's good news. So the good news is that 
every operating system that we run today, modern, so Windows, OS X, even when you run Kubernetes uh, out to the cloud, you know, there's the expectation that software comes with an identity. So code, just like when you download an application, it gets installed on your desktop or your phone. There's actually a machine identity that says this came from a source and it's either good or bad. Now, the opportunity then is that we're going to get a whole bunch more code coming at us from generative AI. So that puts a bit of a burden on then cybersecurity teams, which is then they have to make sure that all code that runs comes with an identity. It's actually not so hard. Again, I said it's built right in, but yeah, there's loads of different sources. I mean, anyone even who's a non-professional coder can ask ChatGPT to build a PowerShell script to make a virtual assistant on your voice command, and it will do it. So that opens up a whole new realm of both code that gets run, but then what does that code do? Yeah, so those are some of the interesting, I think, new threats, unexpected that we're starting to see with generative AI. I mean, there's more to come that we didn't expect, didn't plan. And if I could follow up on that, the thing that seems new to me is, you know, in the old days, you had a coder somewhere that was sitting there and he or she knew what they were writing as they were writing it. Right. But now in this sort of new world where you have an assistant or, or you know, whatever, use generative AI to, to write code for you, as a coder, you don't know what it created. You're just sort of getting the output. Right. And so I just wonder, are we evolving the role of a coder now, not to being the person writing the code, but the one verifying the code, that it does only what it, what you wanted it to do. And it doesn't have these extra things that somehow crept into the code. To, you know, Is that how the role is going to evolve? Being a, a reformed, you know, application developer, I mean, there's a bit of a joke, but in a joke, you know, what's the, the engineer's best friend? It's control C, control V. Yeah. Then when we think about generative AI, it's giving us code before we might have found that, you know, Googling or uh, back in the old days, of course, we, we would have taken it from a book and typed it in. The developer still is accountable. Modern software development is no longer a craft where one engineer just sits down and types. It's it's highly mechanized, like a production line. So we've already had these modern production lines for software development. And the developer, yes, is now more and more the architect, making sure that what they've asked now, the generative AI to produce aligns. Now, that's something that we're going to hear a lot more about alignment of AI. We might hear about it, especially alignment of AI. Is AI going to maybe kill us? But I think much more pressing and and near term is just, is what we're asking for actually aligned with the outcomes that that we want. And that's why software developers are still important. So along a similar question, I guess, uh, you know, a lot of us have considered the internet to be to a degree anonymous or cryptocurrency, different things like that to be to a degree anonymous. And I'm wondering as we're adding or checking machine identities, you know, is there a different kind of angle to this that's undoing some of that level of privacy or anonymity that people are interested in? What we're recognizing is that in the world of zero trust, 
which you know, many of your listeners would have heard about, they might actually be involved in, which really zero trust boils down to we authenticate everything, that identity becomes actually really, really, really important. And in a world where there's only more and more machines, it takes a while to get 10,000 customers. It can take me about five seconds to spin up 10,000 instances of an application in Kubernetes. And in that type of a world, machine identity gets really important. And as well, because we're all talking about zero trust, that idea that everything is authenticated, whether that's a piece of code or whether that's a cloud, we've got to have then machine identity, which I'd say all of the listeners have probably encountered the problems that come along with this. You've probably encountered a website that says, this site cannot be trusted. That's because actually something's broken with the machine identity. Either it's expired or it's misconfigured because your browser is saying, hey, I can't let you talk to that other machine. And that's something that we're going to experience only more to the future. What is the role of government and you know what actions are they taking in terms of like NISTs and directives that are coming out in that sense? Yeah, so certainly I think the big active role in government right now is in two ways. So one um, in the US with loads of great effort to improve cybersecurity and as well to make sure that individual consumers don't bear the burden. That's one of the things we've seen the Biden administration bring forth and putting more responsibility on software developers, which means then we need to have assurance of the software that we're taking in, the software we're building, AI models, that's putting more burden on the identity of the code of the machines that we're delivering safe. The second thing is then, of course, preparing for a post-quantum world. When quantum computers are able to crack the cryptography that's underlined everything, the machine identities allow you to go and make a payment. When your payment terminal knows that it's talking to MasterCard or Visa, or when, again, you go online to check your bank account balance, um, or you get a software update from your car, all of those underlying identities could be broken by a quantum computer. And so that's something that NIST, NSA, other government entities like CISA, again, I mentioned like in Europe uh, with the BSI in Germany, all raising the awareness that we have to prepare for a post-quantum world and that we have to start understand what's out there. We have to get ready to change it. The other thing that I've thought of always when it comes to identity is it's a one-on-one -on -one kind of a thing. You mentioned there may be, you know, I might have a birth certificate, a mm -hmm. passport, a driver's license, but they're all verifying me mm -hmm. to different capacities and different and by different authorities, maybe in some cases. Right. But to Tom's question around generative AI, if there is a version of me at let's say two different decades, right? You know, mm -hmm. One I'm in my, so we go forward into the future, one you're in your 20s, one you're in your 40s, and there's a an identity that's of a human, but it's now existing in a digital form and it can continue mm -hmm. to generate content. What is that? Is that a machine identity? Is that a, a human identity? Is it some combination? How are we classifying that kind of thing? It's a machine identity, and certainly it's a it's something of interest as we think about agency and AI. AI engines taking action on your behalf, 
we've already in some ways been doing that much the way in, in business, certainly. I mean, AI has been taking action on behalf of people. Um, but now I think we're really going to experience it personally, where whether it's a personal assistant or or otherwise is going to take actions based on our interests or just knowing us, predicting. And so that model, that AI engine will have a machine identity. It may have one that is unique for us. Again, the more unique that we can bring uh, an identity, uh, the better. And yeah, that's a machine identity because we use our human identities to log in, you know, our username, password, or you might have I've heard recently now we're getting to a passwordless future of pass keys that allow us, again, as humans to tell a machine, it's us. And then machines take over. So that machine that said, yep, that's really Tom. Then that machine goes on and tells another machine, tells another machine, another machine. I knew Tom taking action on Tom. But of course, that isn't Tom. That's a machine. And, and ultimately, that's some type of machine identity, which puts, a, again, a burden on businesses to the future to get this right. Because what we've seen is the adversary catches up fast. One of the things, you know, what made Stuxnet so virulent? You know, remember, over a decade ago, we all heard about Stuxnet was infecting the world. It was originally intended to infect Iranian nuclear facilities. But it came with a machine identity, in this case, technically something called a code signing certificate that made it look like a piece of graphics driver software, which all basically Windows computers would run. And boom, it exploded. Again, all comes down to how we're going to protect those identities of machines that are going to do work on our behalf. You know, there's another term that's floating around, and, and those of us that sort of live the world, we, we just inherently get it. But I think some of the listeners may have heard it, not understand it, and that's root of trust. Mm. Can you just define it and also in the context of machine identities? So root of trust, it ultimately says that there is a beginning of what is good or bad, the root basically of good. And then from there on, we can have inheritance of what is good, going all the way back to that root or start. And in a digital world, that's really important. Because even it, today with an AI engine, there's some action of a human that starts that. So we have to have a root by which we say, again, something is good, and that digitally is a root of trust. It becomes a machine identity that says, yep, I can issue another identity, issue another identity, issue another identity, issue another identity. Yeah. The reason the reason I'm saying this is it, it is confusing when you hear, okay, root of trust and how important it is. And then you hear that on the next sentence, oh, we're going to a zero trust model. Mm. The zero trust model isn't actually zero trust. There is still an element of trust that's Right. I mean, that's, yes. Bringing those together in a way that people can understand, I think would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So zero trust again for me is just always authenticating. Trust is, uh, of course, a subjective term. Authentication, of course, we can say is binary. Did we authenticate Tom at 6 p.m.? Yes or no. Do we trust Camille? 
that's a different question. That's subjective. And so in a binary world, um, it comes down to this route where we say at some point, this was good, we authenticated it. And then as it operated thereafter, it was authenticating other machines. So it was the root, we said it was good, and then it was allowed to authenticate others. You also hear that as chain of trust. Uh, but yeah, it's basically we can go all the way back up and say, yep, originally we authenticated that. And we can go all the way down. Again, much like probably many of you listeners think about a blockchain. There was you know, initial transaction, and then it all those subsequently follow. And the one thing, of course, with root of trust that's important too is that we can revoke it. If for whatever reason an adversary takes an action, we can revoke it, which of course then means we've got to replace it. So in a digital world where we've got to have binary authentication, these roots of trust, these identities, issuers, we need them, but we also have to replace them quickly. I think it's funny that you said we authenticated Tom at 6 p.m. because I think that's something that, you know, NIST recommends too in the zero trust Mm -hmm. architecture is this notion of continual authentication. So it's not just a, I authenticated Tom at 6 p.m. and I'm done for the next two decades, right? It's like, how frequently do you want to authenticate that? And that's something any organization can set according to their own desire. Right. And in the NIST zero trust, uh, and I think CISA has updated that to 2.0, you know, you'll see that there's not just, of course, Tom that we're authenticating, but it's everything that happens thereafter. Because of course, the value that we create in the digital world happens amongst machines, many machines uh, that of course we don't see or, or understand. And each one of those in a zero trust world also has to be authenticated. That's one of the things that we're working to get away from, which those of us would have, you know, been in old fashioned networks where we had one connection between one connection and they just always worked just because now we have to say, hey, we always have to authenticate because the machine on the other side might be operating in a cloud on the other side of the world. We've never seen it, never touched it. Is it good or bad? It all comes down again just to an identity, just like when we authenticated Tom. Just to be clear, then you you would authenticate Tom, you would authenticate the device he's logging in from, you would authenticate the application he's using, uh, which may be cloud-based, and then you would authenticate perhaps the cloud or cloud environment where processing is occurring also. Right. And all of the, when we think about an application, whether I'm interacting with something like Office 365, Salesforce.com, Zoom. There's just not one application. It's many applications that are running. We don't see them, but they're all working together to produce the experience. And of course, that's too, as we think about in a world of generative AI, AI agents, there'll be a model that will be running in compute across multiple clusters. So authenticating between itself. When that AI talks to another machine, how does it know if it's authenticated or not? Again, that comes down to another machine identity. So this is something for us as humans, it's a bit hard to get our heads around it because we think about people. I can see 
Tom and Camille, but the idea of the machines, the possibly hundreds that are behind the scenes, that's a lot harder for us to fathom. Well, Kevin, I think we'll leave it there. You know, this is one of those topics that the more you sort of peel the onion, you realize that it is all around us and almost every aspect of our lives that is on online. And yet we don't really talk about it that much. We talk, you know, a lot about physical identity, but not really about machine identity, but it's so, so critical. So thanks for uh, spending time with us today and look forward to seeing where this space lends itself over the coming years. Stay safe. See ya. Stay tuned for the next episode of In Technology and follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation. Intel Corporation.